Welcome to Sinner Saint Sister. I'm Allison Sullivan, and this is a podcast about sometimes saving the world and sometimes just surviving in it. In the next hour or so, we will nurture our friendships, explore our joy, shake our fists, all while trying to serve our God, and most likely, all while wearing pajamas. I hope you hear something that lets you know you are loved and helps you love one another. Welcome to Center Saint Sister. There's controversial stuff all around us. There's tense racial relations, scandalous religion, poverty, violence, greed. I think a dissatisfaction with politics has reached an all-time American high. We are living in a contentious time, and people's opinions about it are all around us. With keyboard courage, friends are letting other friends have it. Relatives are trying to be the Holy Spirit for each other. All in all, we clench our certainty tighter than the word, never realizing that we might be using God's word wrongly if we're using it to harm one another. As I sift through post after post about how there's only one way to vote, a verse came to my attention in a purposeful way that said this, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. It's Proverbs 28.5. And maybe I'm jerky, but I read that and I was mad because I thought, Understand justice completely, Solomon? Really? Because I think this is a terribly confusing time to be alive. This world is chaotic. I don't understand anything completely. And even if I feel like I do have some inkling of where God's heart is on an issue, I have felt my own heart hide. I have experienced my own mouth close and a desire to protect myself or to remain comfortable completely. But when I looked again at what Proverbs said, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. So in other words, those who seek Jesus understand justice completely. Okay, now this makes more sense. Jesus. Because no one else has any clue what they're talking about. So let's talk about Jesus. Because this world is not so different than the one he walked with its principalities and powers. We also live in a culture based on lust and greed and power and pride and dominance. It is all around us. And chances are, in one way or another, it is keeping us from mission and it is hardening our hearts against people for whom Jesus' heart would break. The devil is sneaky. When Jesus walked this earth, light came into the world and the darkness was not passive against it. Darkness isn't coiled up in a corner over there so that if you don't poke it, it would just leave you alone. No, it prowls. And if we imagine Satan showing up in red with an arrow at the tip of his tail, well, that's just a cartoon. That's not real temptation. And we know that Jesus was really tempted. I guess my point is that Satan is good at temptation. He is brilliant for his subtlety. And there are things in this world that might seem good that are keeping us from the work of God and that are keeping us from the people of God. Jesus. He talked to people he wasn't supposed to talk to. He argued with people he wasn't supposed to argue with. He ate with people he wasn't supposed to eat with. He touched people he wasn't supposed to touch. He welcomed those we would reject. He befriended those we would exclude. He hired those we would fire. The selfish, the lonely, the partiers, the misbehaved, the cheaters, the oppressed, the judged, the promiscuous, the homeless, the ones caught up in bad choice after bad choice, the ones with broken hearts. It was their house he wanted to visit. 
It was them he called down from the tree. They are who he met at the well. They are who he reached out to touch. For them he drew in the sand. In a moment of rage, after reading a political post that seemed idiotic to me from someone I admire online, I hunkered down and I went through the Gospel of Luke. And I closed my Bible with new resolve. I started reading angry, but shut it peaceful. My job in all this mess is to know my Bible. It's to study God's word. And it is to emulate the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And then I'm supposed to remember that Jesus Christ is the one seated at the right hand of the Father ruling over nations. And because of that, I can relax a little and just study the candidates knowing that no one is perfect, that we are all faulty. But some people are noble, and some people are just, and some people are peaceful, and some people are none of those things. And because God doesn't want to change the world without us, I can pray, and I can use my own conscience, and I can choose who I think will be most likely to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. Honestly, we are disciples before we are Americans. We are disciples before we are Republicans. We are disciples before we are Democrats. We are disciples before we are voters. But if that were really true, wouldn't Christians be meeting in the center aisle? Of course, because I'm part Care Bearer and picturing a friendly huddle, arms across each other's shoulders, all of us leaning on one another, our heads and hearts together. Wouldn't we be peacefully trying to figure out a way to take the gospel back to our respective sides? I believe in us, church. I just do. God's plan for this world is still good. From the book of Philippians, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of mind. These are my new friends, Jane Sherman and Pastor Eleanor Colvin. This conversation brought me so much joy and hope. These are two women who seek to mirror God's glory and humility. Um, hello, ladies. I am so happy to be with you here today on Center St. Sister. Both of you guys are new to the show, and I am so enthusiastic to have new faces and new voices. Um, I feel like we sorely need it. Jane and Pastor Eleanor, will you please tell the listeners hello and introduce yourself if you don't mind? Sure. Um, I'm Jane Sherman. Uh, some people know me as Jane Zane. I've been in this community most of my life. I grew up here in Bryan College Station. And I returned here when I got really pregnant and brought my husband home <laughs> about um, eight, nine years ago <laughs> to be back with my family. They live in College Station and we are living here in Bryan. Um, I have been working at Habitat for Humanity, the local affiliate for the past three or so years. I'm no longer with them. Um, and I'm working with my husband to launch an app called Jobortunity um, that is hopefully will help people connect with one another and um, do commerce locally and support our small businesses and anyone who is an entrepreneur. Um, but I'm also running for county commissioner precinct two here in the Brazos yes. County um, because I feel like I need to engage more um, in any way I can. 
So that's uh, who I am. And I'm really happy to be here, Allison. I think the conversations we've had the past few months um, has helped me anchor why I am doing what I'm doing and running for county mm. commissioner. I think wow. we have to take um, what we're feeling and thinking and praying about and really engage with the larger community. And so I'm, yes. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. You know, God dwells among men and we cannot forget that beauty. And because of that, we have an opportunity to transform the secular with the sacred. And so that's what our conversations these last couple of weeks have really reminded me of too. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thanks for being here. And Pastor Eleanor, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. Um, I'm the pastor of First United Methodist Church in College Station. I graduated from Texas A&M way back in the 1900s. <laughs> 20 years later, God called me um, to ministry in this context. And so I returned to College Station about four years ago. This is my sixth year in pastoral ministry. But prior to um, pastoring a church or prior to attending seminary, I was a journalist and I served as the communications director for our region of the United Methodist Church. And so it's a joy for all of the things that I love to converge. Um, I like to say that the through line is telling stories that change people's lives. Oh, how I love that. Yeah, whether we're talking about journalism or theater, which I also have a background in, or ministry, it's all about telling a story that'll change someone's life. So it's it's a joy to be able to journey with you all. Oh, wonderful. I very rarely have people who I do not know on the show. In fact, I think this is the first time, Pastor Eleanor, but oh my goodness, I love you so much already. <laughs> Um, I am, I'm really glad that y'all are here. You know, we're here to talk about something, um, a little tricky politics. Politics is rarely pretty. Um, and so much of how I feel politically has been shaped by a book that I read. It's called beauty will save the world. And it's by Brian Zond. And in it, he talks about that. There is a certain temptation that is faced by the church when it's hosted by a superpower. So when the church is hosted by a superpower, the temptation is to accommodate itself to that superpower. And so often a superpower's culture becomes obsessed with um, individualism or with consumerism or materialism or even, you know, militarism. And so then those values begin to shape and really distort um, Christianity that is hosted by that superpower. And so when you live in a superpower, you're handed a certain script and that script is largely unconscious. Um, but it very rarely, um, whether it's, you know, um, acquisition and attaining or achieving or even technology, those things very rarely um, fit neatly with the alternative script that we're given by the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so what we end up finding is that the church ends up looking a lot like the world. And so um, in that way, we can vandalize our faith. And so I don't know about you, but I have found it very disheartening watching the American people um, misbehave, really, <laughs> and become more and more polarized. But it's even more depressing watching Christians look just like the world. And we are struggling. I feel like our current 
cultural climate um, is really dire. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on how can we take this moment of of pretty, I, I think it's most people agree, a time of discontent. How can we take this time of discontent and make it an opportunity for clarity rather than just one for cynicism? Do y'all have any thoughts on that? Because I'm feeling really cynical and could use some encouragement. <laughs> I can start on that one. I think um, the concept of individualism is crucial as you figure out what we can do. Um, all scripture is read from what we call your social location. And so even though the story is precise and does not change, the way readers hear it is contextualized by our social location, which that basically is our demographics. So I read scripture with the eyes of a woman, of an African-American woman. I read scripture through the eyes of a person living in a developed nation with resources. And so all of those, I read scripture through my education, which is not sure. afforded to everyone. Sure. And so all those lenses impact how we interpret what we've read. And so it's hard for your individualism not to be a part of how you interpret the gospel. And yet your individualism is not the gospel. <laughs> I think that's the key point. And so many folks in our era have determined, have centered themselves in a way that makes our opinion and our vantage point the gospel. And so I think right. our challenge for this time is to recenter the gospel. You named it as an alternative script when in reality it, it should be the norm. Right. So our work as Christians, I believe, is to recenter the gospel, decenter ourselves, even as we read it from the particular lens of our life experience. But we right. have to anchor in on the gospel. Our individualism cannot become the defining authority. Right. And I'm just going to piggyback right off of that. I think you said um, recentering on the gospel. You know, um, I think as I have grown up and experienced the world around me, it took a long time to growing up in, the, in such an individualistic society to realize that there are other perspectives that I need to consider, right? Mm -hmm. And that took travel, that took education, sure. you know, far, far away, you know, um, learning yeah. to see the world from other people's perspectives, I think is super, super important. And that mm -hmm. allows us to then enter into God's lens perspective because we recognize we are not only looking at the gospel through our lens, but through through Jesus's right and so when we talk right. about cynicism and clarity I think if we are able to step in his shoes you know the what would Jesus do <laughs> you know when we look at how Jesus entered into our world when it was extremely divisive when there was a superpower right and the church was playing into that superpower as well in that context right what did Jesus do he did not disengage you know if he could have not entered our world at all, right? But he did. And once he entered into our world, he engaged. He went to where it is uncomfortable. He went where people are arguing. He, you know, didn't say, oh, the church, we just have to create something else. He went in there and overturned tables, 
right? He met with, you know, the marginalized, the the unpure, you know, all those people that makes, you know, the the, you know, people who are like, well, let's just do it the way you know I think should do it, uncomfortable. He invites us to the discomfort of engaging, and right. we need to. I almost feel like if we're not com- if we're comfortable, then we're not where we're supposed to be, right? Um, and so I'm not comfortable running for county commissioner, but I'm doing it because I feel like we need to enter those places where there is conflict and we need to open those wounds yeah. up and really treat it, you know, with, yeah. with God's justice, his mercy, you know, mm-hmm. and, and with humility. Yeah. Thank you, Jane. Um, Mother Angelica has this really beautiful quote about that following the Holy Spirit is one foot on the ground, one hand in the air, and a queasy feeling in your stomach. Amen to that. You feeling a little queasy? Um, yeah, no, I, I love the thought about individualism because I, you know, uh, pastor Eleanor, you were talking about reading the Bible through your own lens. And I feel like a lot of times when we, it's, it's all we can do. I mean, is, is read it through our own lenses, but in a lot of ways for me, at least that can be a misreading because, um, Jesus isn't just saving um, individuals, although he is, but he's also, he came for a people. And so God is so interested in human society. And I mean, why? We know why. John told us why. It's because God so loved the world. Um, And so I've taken that idea into my politics recently is that this isn't just about individuality. This is about a people. This is about a community. I feel like maybe you guys have seen this too, but I feel like you can either have faithful politics or you can have a politicized faith. (laughs) So when we're talking about politics, I feel like one of those things usually kind of trumps another. I've just seen a lot of friends post and it's, and it's like where their faith is largely informed Um, by their politics instead of their politics being informed by their faith. And so I think that it's really important to show um, allegiance to which kingdom comes first. Of course, we have to be ambassadors to our true home, not our regional one, not our our national one. So of course, we're going to participate in the political process, but we have to do so primarily as an ambassador of another kingdom. So, and that to me, um, Pastor Eleanor, um, when you talked about re-centralizing the gospel, we have a complicated relationship with the state, Christians do, because we're people who are carrying this dual citizenship. Um, and so we're, we're citizens of both the kingdom of Christ and then this, obviously, this geopolitical political nation that we happen to live in. Um, But our allegiance should be clear. So of course, citizens here living where we do, we have a responsibility to engage in politics. And for Christians, this civic responsibility is also bound up and even surpassed by our call to love our neighbor. So how do we engage in this very worldly game that we've got going on as ambassadors of another kingdom? Well, I don't think this dilemma is new for us. We see in the Gospels, um, especially in Matthew 22, the folks are trying to trap Jesus, basically. Hey, should we pay our taxes or not? Right. Jesus says, whose face is on this coin? Caesar? Right. Okay, give it back to him. Render uh-huh. unto Caesars what is Caesars and render unto God what is God's. Yes. And so Jesus modeled it for us and gave us instruction on it, how to 
live in both worlds and how to follow the rules essentially of both worlds and that they do not have to cancel out the other. And if the rules of our, you know, government are in conflict, I guess, if you want to say with the rules of our faith, then it's time to engage as Jenny was outlining earlier, the ways um, Christ engaged. And to go back to the first question, we might even say the ways that he misbehaved. Some in the the legal community or in the church community would have called his engagement misbehavior. And so sometimes it's appropriate then to engage the system with misbehavior so that you can create a more just structure that serves the whole community, as you just said. If the system is only serving a tiny population of people or leaving out, um, leaving others marginalized and on the fringes, then the system is not just, is not of God. And so I think um, Christ showed us And when they were trying to trap him in that little conversation, he said, what, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, which they were familiar with that as the Shema. They knew that from their law. Then he said, and I got something new for you. Another one is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. In the United Methodist tradition, we believe that um, we call it acts of piety and acts of mercy. So there are some faiths that simply want to focus on the relationship between individual and God. And we believe that if you are not focused on relationship and serving your neighbor, then you're not quite hitting the mark on the relationship right. between you and God. But that those right. two inform each other. You love your neighbor as an expression of your love for God who created them. And so it, it just stands to reason that we can do both. We, Mm -hmm. we can honor the just customs and laws of the land. We can engage as our faith leads us when we Mm -hmm. sense that something is not just and is not serving the common good um, and can do all that while maintaining our faith and and loving our God. I love that idea of faithful politics. Yes. Because I, I just don't see how you can separate faith from any dimension of your life. Like God is concerned about our whole lives. We don't get to just give God lordship over Sunday morning before football kickoff. Like if you're Lord of my life, it's every day of my life and every dimension of my life. Right. I'd like to interject real quick before Jane, you take this on that um, we know that Jesus um, did not save the world by becoming the best Caesar. You know, um, we Jesus ushered in his kingdom by refusing to oppose Caesar on Caesar's terms. He showed us a new way. And that new way is just what you're talking about. Like, here's here's the loving your God supremely, but here's the loving your neighbor wildly. And so he took hate and hostility and then he recycled it into love and forgiveness. Amen. Yeah, yeah I love that. That's so good. Um, I just want to add a little bit more to what Pastor Coleman talked about, loving your neighbor as yourself. I think it's really important to realize that 
the way I want to be loved may not be how someone else wants to be loved. Bringing it back to that individualism, um, I think oftentimes when we are only aware of our own situation or condition, it's hard to identify with someone who is different than us and their situation. Um, I see that a lot when it comes to, well, I did it. I worked hard. You know, this the system works for me, you know, and not, not stepping out of my own narrative and challenging it with what other people are experiencing. So to love my neighbor as myself, I almost want to change it as how would Jesus love them in this mm. setting? Um, I think we live in a democracy and it's exciting. It's beautiful, right? Like when we look at the the government system in the Bible, it was a kingship, right? People didn't really have a voice in their government, right? So we have a unique opportunity, the way the constitution is written for all of us to participate. And if we don't take that ownership, that responsibility to help make this a more perfect union, then we are slacking in what we've been charged with as yeah. citizens of this country. Um, right. I don't... Thy kingdom come. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We need to take on that responsibility. And when we are asked to participate, we need to step up and participate. We need to vote. We need to be very critical about who we are electing as we're not a true democracy where we're all in the same room talking about it. You know, we're it's a representative. Mm-hmm. So we need to be very critical in who we are electing to represent us on local government, mm-hmm. on the federal level, all of that, because they are carrying our values, what we, we believe in how we are supposed to love our neighbors into policy, into law. And I love that you name the fact that our nation is a democracy and yet our faith is not. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not. We don't, we might want a voice. We might want to talk back and yell back to the scripture or vote on which passages we want to follow, but our faith is not democratic. And so how do we take that lordship, that kingship, the fact that Christ is king, how do we take that and total allegiance to that and allow it to inform our democracy? And I believe that they can be in conversation with one another. And the more allegiance we have, the more we have allowed ourselves to be subject to Christ as King, to Jesus as Lord, the more we're submitted to that, the more likely we can be faithful and good participants in the democracy of our nation. Right. You know, that kind of, to me, that goes, that reminds me of going back to that superpower concept where the values of the superpower, whether it's um, dominance, you know, greed, what have you, it's almost as though they get pawned off as virtues in the culture. Mm -hmm. So where dominance is not a of a value um, when it comes to the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so it's that recentering. I'm, I'm so glad that you started with that idea of recentering the gospel, recentering the gospel, and then letting that inform everything else. Um, I think that when we're talking about loving our neighbor, I think it might be a good place to, to bring up that I feel like a lot of times it gets thrown into these conversations that God might have some kind of special commitment to the well-being of a particular nation um, over the well-being of other nations. And so this American exceptionalism, we hear that a lot from politicians, but we should never hear it from a Christian. Um, You know, 
<laughs> I just want to note that Reverend Colvin just snorted. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously Jesus is committed to the salvation of the whole world and building up his global church. But I think we hear from a lot of politicians, or is it just me, that we hear from a lot of politicians this idea of, you know, that, that America is, is more special than another. It's not just you. <laughs> Definitely it's not just you. I think um, we are very self-centered. And it's it's our human nature to think that we are somehow more special than anyone else. And we gravitate towards people who are similar to us, who share our values. And that is just part of humanity, you know, um, and God challenges us to think outside of that. I'm reminded of the quote by um, Anne Lamott, who says, when when God hates all the people that you hate, or loves all the people that you love, you can safely assume you have created God in your image. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that's a lot of what happens as well in our culture is that this God who prefers America is created in the image of Americans who prefer America. Yes. That's not actually well said. God, that's not actually us being created in the image of God. But that's us projecting our preferences, beliefs, and desires onto God. Right. Some would even call that idolatry, but I mean, that's another conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that word did come up in my notes, actually. Um, okay. So our experiences and our own personal passions often have political implication, implications. So this is just a personal question for the two of you. What are you passionate about and how is that influencing your political process? Right. So for me, you know, again, we do see the world through our own eyes, right? Um, I'm an immigrant. I came here to the States from China when I was eight. Um, And, you know, I did my Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I learned about the Constitution. I learned about our democracy. And I really fell in love with that. But I also realized that it's a promise for every single person that's here in the United States. And when I see any acts of injustice towards anyone in our country, it just infuriates me because it's not fair. It's not just. And and that's hypocrisy because we supposedly created this nation to get away from that kind of um, injustice, right? We declared our independence from England, right? Because we felt that they were oppressing us and that we by misbehaving, by, by misbehaving, you know, so, you know, so, so my passions kind of go a little bit everywhere, but I do have a heart for people who immigrate here. We who are the people who get to participate in this democracy, we should have a say in how we are embracing those who are seeking refuge. So that, that's really important to me. I think race relations is really important because I myself am a Chinese American, and I have seen race played out in very unjust ways, and particularly towards the Native Americans, towards the Black people in this country, um, and and I've had to wrestle that the race relations for myself because as a Chinese American, as an Asian American, we are part of that conversation, even though we're not at the forefront of that conversation. I benefit from the systemic racism in this country, right? At certain points. And I, you know, get discriminated against at other points, you know? Um, 
but to recognize that this is all just the, the race dynamic in this country is unfair and it is pitting one group of people against another, right? And then somehow justifying it as being American. It just infuriates me. Um, so that's something I really care about. Um, another thing I think as I grew up here in the United States, we came here poor and we really benefited from people loving their neighbors, loving us. Um, you know, we, we benefited from a lot of policies that helped immigrants. Something that I've come to realize more and more is that I don't get to dictate like 99% of my circumstance. I've been really blessed. I'm really privileged to be where I'm at. I have parents who are really well-educated, who, who sought to move to another country for better opportunity for me, right? Um, I've had, when we moved, first moved here, uh, my mom had just passed away. We had teachers come around us, take us shopping, give us haircuts, you know, uh, so we don't look like misfits, <laughs> you know. Um, every step of my journey to where I'm at, I am now, I've had people help me. I've had um, policies, government policies that's helped me. The idea that we just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps is a fallacy. And so when we look at what's going on nationally, right, when we look at you know, why some people are, are excelling and some people are not. We can't just say, oh, back to the individualism, the American individualism. It's not that. But I get so mad when, whenever they're like, look at this person. He is so exceptional. He has overcome blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, the question should be, why, why did he have it so hard? You know, like, what could have he achieved if he didn't have it so hard, you know? Why is he the only one we can look at? Yes. Like, why is that the only one you can name versus all of these others that are having the struggle that you're defining? Right. And the problem is that we then look at this one person and, and point to this person and say, why can't all of you be just like this exceptional person? Right. Well, you know, we only have one Einstein. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can't all be Einsteins. Most of us are just average people living our lives, you know, trying to make it. Yeah. And we need to look at why, where there are injustices so we can have a more fair playing field so everyone can have, you know, what our, our constitution promises. It's very tied for me, my personal experience, recognizing the privileges I've had and not discounting those privileges. I love this question because I'm clear about the things that I'm passionate about, but I had not really thought a lot about how they necessarily link to my politics. I do know how they link to my work. So it was nice to think about how they connect to my politics. I, um, the big umbrella that I use as a catch-all is that I'm passionate about faith, people, and the arts. Mm. Um, and so for me, the way the faith part might connect to my politics is I wanna support candidates and laws that support religious freedom for all religions and um, that avoid discrimination based on religion. So I get really amped up when I think about someone being discriminated against because their head is covered or they're in a hijab or they're Sikh or whatever it is that's different, quote unquote, 
from the norm in America. And we're getting to be a plurality, like where there's about to not really be a norm. And so there ought to be a bit more um, a capacity to embrace everyone. And so I know that that informs my politics in that way. In terms of people, I mean, there are a few topics that kind of tug at my heartstring even more than others. So things like um, hunger and poverty and human trafficking and the educational system, particularly this school to prison or cradle to prison pipeline. Um, And so how do we disrupt that, Um, particularly for Black girls? I'm hearing that a lot of the reforms that are in place have censored um, Black boys, which is great. And now we have this same crisis that's overwhelming um, my little sisters. So I'm super passionate about that. And so, again, I would support candidates and policies that I believe serve the common good. And I think of um, the scripture in Jeremiah 29, especially verse 7, where they're in exile. And God said, you know, I, I know this isn't your home, but work for the greatest good. Make sure everything works out here. Um, the scripture says, seek the prosperity of the city. Pray to God for it, for as the city prospers, you too will prosper. And so that's my thought. Who are the candidates? What are the policies that serve the common good so that we all prosper together and that prosperity isn't a thing held for only a few folks in the community? Mm -hmm. In terms of the arts, I'm going to define art as anything that is beauty, So it could literally be um, creative and performing arts, which is a part of my background, or it could be nature. And so, again, candidates and policies that allow for beautiful things to exist, whether that is returning art curriculum to the schools and not only being a few students that can have music class or be introduced to instruments or public speaking, things like that, that'll develop lifelong skills in them and Mm -hmm. things that science say activate different parts of the brain. When you are listening or learning classical music or music in general, that is stimulating an entirely different part of your brain. And so I would support policies that bring that back into our schools or that support um, and protect our natural parks. So you want to get me petition signing <laughs> when I when I read things like for-profit companies pumping all of the water out of particular natural um, reservoirs or natural sources and making money mm-hmm. off of that natural reserve that the people in that state are being limited by. So those kinds of things. I trump I, I dump all of that into the beauty or art conversation, um, Mm -hmm. personal creative beauty that we might experience, but also the beauty of our world. What what candidates and policies allow for beauty to exist in our world? Mm -hmm. And I just want to follow up with that because I feel like, you know, these are big issues, very complicated, but they're touched upon on every level of government. And as Mm -hmm. say, for example, when we're talking about nature and preserving nature you know right now 
there's a debate happening on the local level about Gibbons Creek. You know, um, they re want they want to reopen a coal plant, for example. You know, is that the best way for us to steward our resources? You know, is that what we want to do, or do we want to decommission it completely and put a park there? Right. Um, when we talk about the cradle to prison pipeline, a few years ago, the commissioners um, issued a bond to expand the juvenile detention center. Now, people in those, the kids who can be put in the juvenile detention centers can be as young as 10. The majority of them who are placed there are black, right? Um, and the, the argument for funding that was that we anticipate population going up and that we're gonna have issues and we're gonna need to keep our community safe and therefore we need more beds to put these kids in, right? Who are misbehaving and who are not contributing um, to our society and, you know, making our community unsafe, right? Brazos County Jail is number one provider for mental health services in this county, right? Why is it there that we're providing the services and not before they act, the people who are struggling with mental issues and addiction issues, why are they not treated before they interact with the police, right? So all these questions need to be asked and those assumptions that have, that are not challenged need to be challenged if we are to steward the monies that everyone's contributing towards to provide services for our community. And so when you're asking those big questions, it's important to look and understand how, what powers the local government has in influencing those decisions and how those, that money's getting spent. Jane is spot on in all of that. Um, and, I, and it's not unique for Brazos Valley, right? I'm from Houston. And so in terms of the largest mental health care provider in Harris County, it's, it's the jail system as well. I love that you brought up the detention center issue and, you know, where are we investing the money on the front end or the back end? Because that same money, if we have it to build the jail, that same money could be invested into the educational system, which we know that they say um, it's the reading of the, uh, I want to say it's the fourth grade reading scores that are the determinants for how many prison beds you'll need in the future. So you're looking at educational stats to say, these are the people that will not be prepared to effectively function in society. These are the people that will slip through the cracks because they're so far behind in their learning. And so if we can see that and then project, we'll need more prison beds or we'll need more juvenile detention beds, why can't we see that and determine we will need more teacher's aides in a classroom to assist with learning or we'll need more um, after school or enrichment programs that help get a person on level. And so I, I totally hear what you're saying and affirm it all because we, we have choices about where we invest our energy, where we invest our money. I think the other piece of that is we're in a constant crisis response versus in putting some forethought and planning into it. So in my opinion, the detention beds is a crisis response, whereas you could have engaged on the front end of the issue and been more proactive in keeping that from being a need. And, and I think having these questions, asking the questions is the best place to start. Like I, yeah. I'm not saying I know 
all the answers, how to fix any of this, right? But we need to start questioning. We need to start having the tough dialogues that we need to have, right? We can't shy away from what's difficult. That is not what Jesus called us to do. And the questions y'all are asking are such evidence of your faith perform, or I'm sorry, forming your political conscience. And so we know that there's no single or uniform comprehensive way for Christians to do politics, but there are these guidelines. There should be these guidelines. And for me, it's... Um, Unity. I think it's because I grew up Protestant and then met and fell in love with my husband, who is very inconveniently Catholic. And so I learned about um, Catholicism and really fell in love with Catholic social teaching and doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so um, it became very convenient for me to um, to want to blur the lines between Protestant and Catholic, although I don't think that it was just um, an individual interest. I do think that there's a holy desire for unity. For me, one of the guidelines that I have found very important when it comes to politics is um, choosing candidates that use, um, you know, that have the rhetoric of unity. So is is a candidate's um, voice creating fear or division among Americans? Um, are they willing to be mean or petty or self-aggrandizing? As it turns out, that's very, very important to me. I would like a peacemaking, unifying leader. And I know that nobody's perfect, but some men and women are decent and some men and women are truthful and some men and women are brave. And then some are none of those things. So as it turns out, when I'm like thinking of these guidelines and who I'm going to vote for, it's not necessarily, you know, red or blue, but a person's character really, really matters to me. Do y'all have any guidelines that y'all haven't touched on yet that you use when it comes to hitting the polls? I think for me, um, I was a missionary in Venezuela, uh, Caracas, Venezuela, for a couple of years and with a group called Interchange. I went down there barely speaking any Spanish. I didn't know what I was doing there, but I felt called there. And I'd like to say that after two years, the only person I converted was myself because <laughs> God really did change my heart um, about you know, what it means to love your neighbor and to be loved by your neighbor. I think it's often hard to allow other people to love us because that requires us acknowledging our own brokenness. Um, but um, as I become more and more engaged in civically here locally, I, I felt like, why, why would God care about my personal issues when there are these greater issues out there? Um, and I was talking to someone on my team and what he said was so beautiful. He said, you know, God, is orchestrating this dance. Um, and he has invited us to be part of that. He is calling us to this dance and we all have our own little place in this greater dance that he's orchestrating. So when we are invited into this dance, we are seeking his place for us in that dance, not our place in that dance. And so I think it's finding those people, like you said, that are seeking God's heart to find their role in, in what God is doing rather than vice versa. If I am so adamant about being the protagonist in God's story, then something's off. He is the protagonist. Um, and so finding individuals who understands and reflects God's heart. And, and for me, someone who is also, you know, pursuing reconciliation of, on all levels. For me, reconciliation is 
is super important. Reconciling and how I'm going to dance in God's dance <laughs> is really mm-hmm. important. And the the thing that came to mind is when, you, especially when you talk about the dance. So our fancy theological term for that is perichoresis. So that's a big word. <laughs> the root of choreography comes uh-huh. from that. But perichoresis, this idea that the parts of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, are in a dance. And like you said, they invite us to participate in that dance with them. And I just think that's a, a, a beautiful thing. And I love the sense of, are we trying to be the lead, the principal dancer, the protagonist, or are we joining in this um, this chorus with mm. the triune God? Mm. I love that. Yeah, it's be- really is beautiful. I also think that it's not, you know, there's a place for everyone in that dance. Even people mm-hmm. who oppose us in what we believe in, there is a place for them in that dance. And if we don't... Yeah. You know, that takes a lot of maturity, Jane. I don't know if I'm there yet. <laughs> Sometimes I don't. I don't want to. Right? Yeah. But God, you're right, though. God does not want to change the world without us. And so and we need each other. We're better together. Um, before I, before we go, I would love to um, get your ideas on our government can either perpetuate injustice or it can be a, a partner in furthering justice. What are the questions that we should be asking ourselves as we head to the polls and the next weeks? I think for me, in some ways, it's as simple as what candidate and what policies will help God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's, that's the bottom line. That's it. And I (laughs) I mean, I have a tendency to this sense of spiritual imagination or biblical imagination where scholars ask you to place yourself in the text. So I like to think about that. If we were standing inside the gospel right now, which one of these candidates would be walking into town with Jesus and which one would be plotting against him or which one would be trying to trap him with some fancy questions? Who's walking alongside Christ? Who is trying to be an obstacle um, for Christ? Wow. Thank you. um, Thank you for both of those images. Yeah. Amen. I agree. <laughs> Definitely agree <laughs> with that. I, for me, Micah six eight um, is kind of my guiding verse in life. Sure, um, he has yes. shown you what is good, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your Lord. And I think those are mm. the key characteristics I'm looking for in mm-hmm. leaders: people who mm-hmm. are making policy and judging on the courts and whatnot. So. Thank you both so much. I, you know, it's easy to lose confidence in the government of this age to bring about any sense of righteousness or or justice or peace. But these conversations give me so much hope. I know that you, along with me, ache for this world that God loves and created uh, to be set right. I appreciate so much your passion and resolve and your commitment and your discipleship. Thank you both so much. Jane, before we sign off, can you direct people to where you would like for them to go to learn more about you so that if they might want to vote for you, I need a yard sign by the okay. way. So <laughs> for sure. Um, you can find out more about me at Jane Sherman for commissioner.com. I'm also on Facebook as well. Um, if you need a yard sign, let me know. Um, if you want to know what's on the ballot, you can go to brazosvotes.org. 
it's important to vote on everything on the ballot because every single of those items, individuals, they do matter um, to you, but also to your neighbor. Um, I think I would say pray before you go, but make sure you go and vote and participate. And okay, yeah. early voting dates, October 13th to the 30th. And then election day, of course, is November 3rd. And in the Brazos County, you can go to any polling place to vote. You don't have to go to a specific one. Pastor Eleanor, it was such a delight to meet you. I pray that our paths cross again. Thank you both so much. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dear God, we come before you and acknowledge that you are Lord of all. You created everything, and all of it is by and for your glory. Whether we are being mercilessly persecuted, or whether we are being led by a person after God's own heart, you are in control and sovereign. Whether policies are beautifully in line with the gospel, or whether things seem to be spinning out of control and and hanging by a thread, whatever the case, God, you are sovereign. But in light of all that is wrong in the world, we come to you tonight asking for you to sanctify us and to prepare us for this election season. We are divided, and we are burdened under the weight of that divisiveness. God, please give us faith to know that your mighty hand is at work. God, forgive us when we find ourselves wondering how you could possibly still be in control because of all of the things happening in the world. Lord, above all, we pray for unity in the body of Christ. Help us to be of the same mind, having the same love, and to be in full accord with one another. Help us to love you supremely and our neighbor wildly. Amen. And for this episode, a special thank you to Jane Sherman and Pastor Eleanor Colvin. Jane Sherman is running for county commissioner. If you loved what she had to say today, go vote for her. I know I will. Thank you to Pamela Anthony Cutright and Chen Redfield for music. Center St. Sister now has a Patreon page. Please consider supporting Center St. Sister by searching for Allison Sullivan on Patreon.com. Many episodes are now only available for patrons. Send us your questions at CenterStSister at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Allison M. Sully. Don't forget to review, like, and subscribe, and tune in next week.